Hey friends, it's Wednesday and there's big things going on in the world and I'm not uh, an expert in those things, so I'm talking about those things that I know about. And of course, there's always more that needs to be known, but um, there's there's escalation and development always going on. And, and the Plain Spoken Project, if, if this is your first video watching that I've ever done, my whole thing is just that I think information is good and helpful for people and that a lot of times people feel overwhelmed by trying to understand things that are very complicated. And so I try and, and lift up information that's salient and helpful for people to make good decisions, especially within the United Methodist Church as it's going through a season of disaffiliation, but also within the global Methodist Church as it's discerning what it wants to be. So if you think I'm okay at this, if you think that it's a good ministry to support, then I'm going to just on the front end urge you to consider liking and sharing and commenting. I, I only get as smart as y'all help me get, so uh, commenting in particular is really helpful. And then if you're wanting to support uh, this effort on my part, then uh, go to the tail end of the video and I'll, I'll promote locals. So um, this, this topic is going to pertain to Oklahoma where I live. Uh, I'm no longer part of the conference here, but it's also going to deal with a much larger context of disaffiliations in the United Methodist Church. So I'm going to start particular with Oklahoma, and I'm going to get broad. Um, so the the setup for this is, if you look at uh, my screen here, if you can, if, if you're listening in, then I'll just tell you what it says. This is a Facebook post from uh, someone on Friends of the Global Methodist Church page. It talks about the conference in Virginia that was held on the 7th of October this month. The Virginia Conference of the United Methodist Church voted in a special session today of 92% to 8% to approve the disaffiliation of 120 churches, including the one I attend. I guess my question is that it, what is the 8% thinking to vote against disaffiliation for churches that have overwhelmingly said they don't want to be part of your organization anymore? That means 20, 220 churches now have now disaffiliated in the Virginia Conference or over 20%. I think that last sentence is not really connected to what came before, but this um, this segment that I'm doing is going to be pertaining partly to that question about these 8% that voted not to let them go. What are they thinking? What's going on here? Um, there's a dynamic that, that I've talked about before that a lot of people have been talking about where there are people that are so loyal to the institution that they are not willing under any circumstances to consider letting churches go. Rather, the only option for them is uh, if you don't like the UMC, you can vote with your feet and leave, but we're going to hold on to the building and all of your assets. So um, if, if you're not interested in the particulars of Oklahoma, but you want to deal with that issue, then that's what the second half of this will be dealing with. I'll be reading through John Lomparis' most recent article dealing with this phenomenon of, okay, what happens whenever you restrict uh, a church from taking its assets with them when they leave? It's, it's not good for the conference. So we'll pay attention to that in a bit. But I wanted, uh, before we turn to the particulars of Oklahoma, if you can see my screen, this is a, a website hosted by umnews.org where it talks about the special sessions of 2023. And you'll see Virginia Conference is right there. I didn't say it before when we were, we were on it, but I was kind of surprised that they so easily let that many churches go. The bishop there, Sue Halpert Johnson, who oversaw North Georgia, uh, just uh, indefinitely suspending all disaffiliations. It's the conference where Drew ends and uh, a very strong contingent of uh, progressive activists 
have been. Um, it, it seems to me that progressivism is a, a very alive and well in Virginia. So I was surprised and delighted that they chose to be gracious with those that wanted to disaffiliate. So anyway, Virginia, uh, Virginia's there. North Texas has a special conference coming up on December 2nd. Upper New York on October 14th, that's this weekend. Florida, another one, December 2nd. Uh, Oklahoma, that's going to be this weekend, and so I, that's what I have a mind toward as I'm, I'm covering stuff today. Um, Illinois, uh, Great Rivers, December 2nd. There are many more, and the point of bringing this up is um, what, uh, <laughs> what, what are we supposed to be thinking as all these come up? What, what's happened in all of these uh, different annual conferences is that most of the people who want to go have already gone. Well, I should say I shouldn't say most. Maybe uh, this last cohort is bigger than previous cohorts, but um, a lot of cohorts have already left that are sympathetic with disaffiliation. And as they soberly look at the losses that are coming down the pike, are they going to be able to say goodbye, or are they going to do the calculus and say we would rather try and hold on to all of our assets, we would rather risk the lawsuits rather than look at this potential defeat? So I'm going to talk about. For a minute, I'm going to uh, zoom into Oklahoma and the picture that they're looking at, um, and then I'm going to zoom back out and read through the Lon Paris article. So hopefully this is all useful to you. So if you look at my screen, this is a spreadsheet. I did not put this together. Rather, this was sent to me by a person here in Oklahoma who got all made a spreadsheet of all of the local churches in Oklahoma. I've previously shown you this uh, spreadsheet that was put together on the Oklahoma Conference of uh, the United Methodist Church. And I'll have these links in the show notes if anybody wants to check this out, but this deals with the churches that are disaffiliating. Those are the ones in red here, and then the churches that are closing under, I think it's paragraph 2549, um, and then buying their buildings back. So uh, based on the economic calculus of of that, that's what they're choosing to do. And if you look at this spreadsheet, it has some boring, you know, it says all of them are in Oklahoma, it says their district and uh, county, county seat, if they are a county seat, um, and then I, that must be the name of their clergy, and then um, vote tallies for when they voted to disaffiliate, uh, the percentage that voted to disaffiliate how big their membership is, how big their average worship attendance is, how many professions of faith that they've had. Um, there's not a, a year on this, but I assume it's 2022. How many baptisms? Uh, I didn't even look at Exhibit E. There's no data on Exhibit E. That's weird. How much they pay in apportionments, what their decimal is, um, the the market value of their land, other assets, total market value, their ethnicity, the closest United Methodist Church, the population. They have everything here because what they wanted to do was um, look at the calculus involved in are these vital locations or can we withhold them. At the last special called conference, several delegates got up and said, we don't have the information needed in order to make an educated decision on if we want to let these guys go. Well, I don't know who put this one together, but they said, well, they're not going to be without information this time. So the question is how many delegates are actually going to look at this. So uh, like I said, I'll have the link in the show notes. You can look at it yourself. This this one that we haven't seen before 
um, I, I haven't verified all of it, but it, I mean, it resembles the truth. I haven't found, and I've looked through this quite a bit. This starts with, this is organized by attendance values. So it has the largest attendance church at the very top. This, this is the list before disaffiliations began. It has the largest, uh, Tulsa Asbury, it was also the first church to seek disaffiliation publicly. But if you look, these are the biggest churches in the annual conference, and the yellow is those that have sought disaffiliation, and then the color coding here is uh, what wave they matted out in, if at all. So you see this red one, that's Church of the Servant. They tried to get out. Uh, the conference didn't play ball with them. They had one vote and barely failed, and there was a lot of conference intervention. They said they would be given another vote. Then the conference welched on that, created a technicality where they wouldn't get to vote again, and then uh, they had no recourse but to uh, take it to worldly courts. The worldly courts this last week just shut it down. So if you didn't see my live stream of the Supreme Court proceedings, you can still find that on the live stream section of, of my uh, YouTube channel. If that's not where you are, you can you can find Plain Spoken there. Um, so that Church of the Servant was one of the biggest churches. Uh, a number of you have written me, what's going to happen with Church of the Servant or First Church? Let's see, First Church is down here. Well, I skipped it. There it is. So they had an average attendance of 96. Um, what's going to happen with them? The short answer is, I don't know. Uh, the question is how gracious the conference feels and uh, from what I've been seeing, the conference staff doesn't feel very gracious. I don't know that there's going to be any action whatsoever on them this weekend. I, I have no idea. Uh, if, if you hear anything from me, the question, the answer to that question, what's going to happen to Church of the Servant and First Church, big fat, I don't know. I don't even know all the different options in the realm of possibilities. So, um, but I'm, I'm pretty sure Church of the Servant is not going to be granted an exit this weekend if anything. What I'm hoping is the conference, if they are gracious, is going to allow them to leave the denomination quietly under paragraph 2549 sometime early next year. But how likely is that? I, I have no idea. But if you look at the biggest churches in Oklahoma, first, they're, uh, this is Mosaic UMC with an average attendance of 100. They are a progressive congregation that is choosing to disaffiliate because the UMC isn't moving fast enough. Of course, Oklahoma City St. Luke's, number three up here, was the third biggest church, and their average attendance was almost certainly bigger than that. This is just 2021 numbers. Um, <clears throat> but they left as well and joined the Methodist Collegiate, whatever that one is called for the big rich ones that don't want to take a firm stand. Anyway, um, that's, that's where they went. But the rest of these are pretty conservative. But look how many of the very biggest are... Um, the, the dark orange ones are the ones coming before the conference for disaffiliation this time. But look how many, there are very few in the top 20, 25, that are wanting to stay UMC. And then after that, yeah, you get large portions that are wanting to remain. So um, there's a lot of interesting stuff to be gained from this. Um, I, I've written the guy who authored this to ask if I can make it publicly available. If I can, you might look for a Google Docs link in the show notes if you want access to that. There are tabs down here that are very interesting as well, and I he, it's a Google document, so he can continue to add values. I asked for the financials uh, to be matched up against this so uh, we could see what the financial impact of such a decision will be, um, but uh, it's not there. I looked through 
stuff on my own. I, I just came up with some pertinent facts that I thought were interesting. So when you look at attendance currently, when you look at the cohorts that have already disaffiliated, Oklahoma Conference has lost 38% of its average Sunday morning attendance. So that's a little over a third. But if they allow this next batch to leave, that number will go up to 49%. So if you look at before disaffiliations and after disaffiliations, statistically, they'll look at the number of churches and go, not even a third left. But when you look at attendance, how many people are actually represented at the annual conference, it's going to be like the conference was cut in half. So I think that's that's a helpful way to look at things. Also, um, let's see, I'll, I'll switch to this. The total average number of attendee, attenders seeking exit this weekend is 2,835. And then uh, before disaffiliations, there were 55 churches in the annual conference of over 400 uh, that got 100 or more attendees in worship each Sunday. And of those, I know it looks different, but only 18 have disaffiliated. And then including the three biggest churches, that re- they, that represents 15% of the conference attendance. But then there are nine more that get 100 or more in attendance every Sunday. Uh, that If they leave, the conference will have lost almost exactly half of its medium to large churches, which means it'll be uh, the leftovers of the medium to large churches, not any of the top three being present, and then a bunch of very small churches that just didn't have the muscle or the resolve to get out. So it it doesn't look like it's going to be real pleasant. So there might be some that are inclined to try and hold on. There might be some that are inclined to just say, you know, we've already given up too much. We need to hold on. We need to make this thing work. Um, We cannot willfully let our conference decline to this level. So then what, what is suggested then is what happens if a conference decides to hold on. So we're going to now turn to the John Lamparis article, and we're going to spend the rest of our time exploring that question of what happens if uh, a conference decides to hold on. So this is his most recent article. What did stay UMC activists really win by blocking disaffiliations? So he's going to look at the cases in which conferences did restrict disaffiliations, and lest you're not familiar, uh, acquaint you with with what's come of it. So let's let's start reading. Um, I'll make this a little bigger for you. Activists urging people to choose the main liberal side of the denominations divide, the post-separation UMC, widely use the slogan "Stay UMC." There's been much contention in this season of separation. However, by the time a congregation gets to the final phase of disaffiliation by being presented as part of a list of congregations who disaffiliation its annual conference is set to ratify, it has usually been relatively smooth sailing. Indeed, in this most difficult season, there have been numerous examples of United Methodists across the spectrum of disagreement seeking to proceed relatively amicably. Of course, that's what we're all hoping for. That's my commentary there. As a side note, It must be remembered that forcing disaffiliating congregations to wait for their annual conferences to meet and vote to approve their disaffiliations was not in paragraph 2553 disaffiliation policy adopted by the 2019 General Conference. The Judicial Council basically changed the process by adding this as an additional requirement. I'd forgotten that. That's important to remember. Arkansas and Virginia 
are the only two annual conferences to ever actually vote to prevent a congregation from disaffiliating, even after the congregation jumped through all the difficult hoops demanded. But how much did the stay UMC activists blocking these disaffiliations really win? So getting into this, I'll remind you, sympathetic cohorts to disaffiliation have already left, which means the proportions of people sympathetic with those churches that want to leave has gotten smaller each time. As they continue to have these special called conferences, yes, only in these two conferences have there been any churches that were withheld against their will. But the likelihood that it's going to happen is going up. And this is not just in Oklahoma. Several annual, you know, actually in Oklahoma, the stay UMC crowd has not been that organized or big. There have just been individuals that carry that sentiment and are very loud and sometimes very nasty about it. Um, in other annual conferences, there have been significant stay UMC contingents. I even saw evidence in Arkansas that conference staff and employees were involved in the stay UMC movement, organizing uh, and active in local churches. So there's reason for me, I think reasonably to expect that a number of these conferences in these last three months of the year are going to see concerted efforts, probably not to block the whole slate of churches leaving, although that's not outside of the realm of possibility, but instead trying to separate out individual churches that it says are needed for missional purposes or one other cause or another. And that's both of those things are addressed in this article, so, so let's stick with Lomperis. Back into the article. In a November 2022 special session, the Arkansas Annual Conference voted by somewhat narrow margins of less than 57% each to block the disaffiliation of three larger congregations, Cabot UMC, Jonesboro First UMC, and Searcy First UMC. Then, in a February session, the Virginia Annual Conference voted to block the disaffiliation of Newtown UMC in the first key vote on this. Stay UMC activists campaigning to block this congregation won by less than a single percentage point. Why on earth would Stay UMC activists take such an extreme step? He goes over some details in Virginia and then in Arkansas that are helpful, useful, interesting, but I think you can read those on your own. So I'm going to have the link to this article in the show notes. You can read those details on your own. The, the byproduct was in Virginia, they withheld one church. In Arkansas, they withheld three. And then jumping ahead in the article, Lon Paris says, how is that working out? In all four cases, blocking congregations' disaffiliation displayed over-the-top animosity against the congregations and a callous indifference about harming their ministries, but also became costly for those staying United Methodist, all for relatively hollow victories. So he's going to, the rest of the article details that. So if you want to know the details of how it is that United Methodist Conferences are shooting themselves in the foot by withholding the assets of a local church, you should consider this. Even if you're not particularly interested, it's still one of those things that if you are a delegate to your annual conference, you need to take seriously responsibility to make an informed vote. And you need to be informed of the very real potential possible outcomes of such a vote if you vote to withhold individual churches. They tried to do this in Oklahoma and take St. Luke's off of the the voting block so that they could withhold it. It's, you know what, you know, the, the conference here should be rejoicing 
that they did not get away with that. That would have been a huge mess. It would have destroyed a lot of things. As they're looking at doing the same thing in Oklahoma, and I know for a fact that they are, they've talked about at least two locations. Two, a district superintendent has referred to at least two locations that the conference is not going to allow to be entertained for disaffiliation because they're missionally needed. So, you know, what, what's going to happen there? We're, we'll see, and maybe I'll have a follow-up report. I always think my last report on Oklahoma is really going to be my last, and then I just have access to better information than a lot of people. Which, by the way, um, that spreadsheet that I showed you a minute ago that some guy put together is just a normal guy. And what I've come to realize is there are a lot of just normal guys and gals in the United Methodist Church, in the Global Methodist Church, that collect data on your own because you want to work with reality what I want to say to you is, I'm your friend. Share your stuff with me. I hate doing that kind of data collection. I love uh, learning from it, but I'm not gifted at it. I don't have that time and energy for it. But man, if you share your information with me and if it's good info, I'm going to try and do my best to make sure other people benefit from it as well. So if you have a benevolent heart, please share it with me. I would pay you money, but I don't have money to pay you. Uh, hopefully the goodness in your heart moves you to share Good information. I know Oklahoma is not the only place with nerds in it that spend their free time collating information. So, hey, you nerds around the U.S., around the world, send me your stuff and uh, let me let me help everybody else benefit from that. So, okay, let's get back into the article. All right, so Lomperis, uh, he was talking about, in all four cases, things went a certain way. Similar observations may be made of numerous cases in which traditionalist congregations attempt to disaffiliate were blocked before they got to the point of coming before the annual conference session. So um, he's, he's talking about phenomena that have been seen in many more churches other than these four that uh, were the most loudly rebutted. Lampera says, in both conferences, Virginia and Arkansas, the blocking of these disaffiliations came after extended campaigns by stay UMC activists. The failures of both bishops Gary Mueller in Arkansas and Sue Halpert Johnson in Virginia to be more proactive in de-escalating the conflict and redirecting the energies of different parties into truly win-win solutions were inexcusable dereliction of duties by those entrusted to being caring to be caring shepherds. If you saw my work a year ago, it was a little less than a year ago on Gary Mueller and the way that he handled the conference. It was so bad that they they took the live stream and made it private. Uh, nobody can view it unless they're given special permissions now. Uh, it just looked bad because he did a bad job of, of doing what uh, Lon Paris and I would say was his duty. Halpert Johnson, I don't think, cares a lick about that. I, I, I see lots of evidence from her personal conduct that she um, personally wants for these churches to suffer, even if it comes at cost to her. Uh, the feeling I get is that she, among a few others in UMC leadership, are willing to cut off their nose to spite their face. Um, of course, I have to acknowledge when I say that, I don't know her personally. I've never spoken to her. I've watched a few hours of footage of her, but that's not a replacement. I can't speak to her heart, her inner motives. So just because I have suspicion does not mean that I'm saying it's this way. She, she has to be this way. There's always another potential possibility. That's just how it seems to me. Getting back into Lon Paris's article, the widely decried contentiousness of Arkansas's November 2022 session and its ugly aftermath will taint Bishop Mueller's legacy and place in the UM history for years to come. The unforced choices of both conferences to block these disaffiliations loudly 
showed a watching world an ugly display of the United Methodist leaders pursuing graceless vindictiveness and financial greed, with evidently little to no concern for those they hurt. Such manifestly unkind and unchristian behavior is terrible PR and may hurt the denomination in these states in deeper and more lasting ways than stay UMC activists realize. In Virginia, the result was that Newtown's pastor and most of its people walked away from their building and relaunched as a new, growing, global Methodist congregation. The remnant congregation, he's got a link there if you want to check them out. And uh, now the building sits empty on Sundays with no congregation planted there. The Virginia Conference could have simply allowed this congregation to continue ministering at its prime location. This is a quote, prime location as a key missional field for the sake of introducing people to Jesus, end quote, just no longer, quote, on behalf of the United Methodist Church, end quote. Instead, now there is no Christian congregation of any denomination introducing people to Jesus there. So, um, all right, uh, while this may not have been the intent of the Stay UMC activists, the results of their campaign are reminiscent of the false mother who told Solomon she would rather see the baby killed than given to her rival. That's quite an image, isn't it? Um, that's in the Bible, if you don't know it. While details differ, this is also reminiscent of the infamous incident when Episcopal Church officials in upstate New York drove an Orthodox congregation out of its building, which sat empty for more than a year and was ultimately sold for less than 13% of its assessed value to become an Islamic center. If allowed to disaffiliate, Newtown UMC would have paid the conference $562,000. Instead, it has left the Virginia conference stuck with a $1.1 million mortgage debt. Some people asked me with respect to Church of the Servant and First Church if they are leaving any debt, and at least in the case of Church of the Servant, the answer is no. Um, I'm pretty sure the answer is no for First Church, but I could be wrong there. But I had uh, members in the know at Church of the Servant follow up with me and say it's debt-free. In the case of a lot of churches, that will not be the case. All right, back into the Lawn Paris article. Shortly before the final vote on Newtown UMC, a conference member asked Bishop Albert Johnson's CFO and treasurer, David Domacy, specifically about this outstanding mortgage. His response avoided clearly acknowledging the strong possibility of the conference becoming saddled with this debt, as has now actually happened. And he even claimed, at, he has the timestamp, quote, the mortgage is not an issue in this case. <laughs> See, that's just one more example of paternal behavior on the part of conference staff. You know, it's it's... The annual conference is a conciliar body. That means it's ruled by council. The council gets to decide what's relevant in every case. And so whenever you have officials telling you what's relevant, that's when you have them showing their hand that they don't trust you to make responsible decisions. All right, back to Lomperis, quote, Thus, thanks to disaffiliation-blocking stay UMC activists, a, bribe, a vibrant congregation was effectively driven out of its building, the UMC's Virginia conference could have reached a lot of money, received a lot of money, but instead became burdened with a debt roughly twice as large, in addition to a black eye on its reputation. Meanwhile, what could have continued to be a strategic location for introducing people to Jesus is now no longer being used by any Christian church of any stripe to do this. How is this a win-win situation? I can imagine progressives reading this will go, well, this is just a short-term Costs long term, it'll be a big benefit. In which case, like 
I guess we'll just see. We'll just see how all this works out. But even if there's a monetary benefit, right now, conference staff should be shoring things up. And instead, when they're spending all of their time on managing properties and legal affairs, then you're missing out on a lot of stuff that has long-term consequences. Just something worth considering. Back to Lomparis. In Arkansas, none of the three Pyrrhic victories of the disaffiliation blocking stay UMC activists looks impressive upon closer scrutiny. If you don't know what a Pyrrhic victory is, that's where you win the battle, but you lose the war pretty much. Or it, even though you beat your enemy, you're, you're hurting so bad, you've lost too. Lomparis says, predictably, stay UMC activists blocking Searcy UMC led to a lawsuit. Eventually, a settlement was reached in late June. While the settlement's terms restricted what could be revealed, apparently the bottom line is that the disaffiliated congregation is allowed to leave with its property while the conference has helped a minority of stay UMC church members form a new United Methodist congregation elsewhere. In other words, what should have happened in the first place. So they got to pay a bunch of legal money to do what they should have done uh, in the first place. There is a link there if you want to follow up with it. The article says, the main difference accomplished by the stay UMC activists was a needless delay of the same basic result with an adversarial lawsuit stretching across nearly half a year and all of the associated hard feelings and costs to the finances, time, energies, and mental health of the leaders of both the congregation and the conference. With Cabot UMC, the senior pastor, majority of staff, most leaders, and a supermajority of active members left their building to relaunch as a non-UMC congregation, while a smaller group of stay UMC loyalists remained with both the denomination and the building. As one newspaper reported, on one of its first Sundays, this relaunched Cabot UMC, Cabot Methodist, excuse me, I think this is a conservative one, yeah, the split-off, had 320 people in attendance with children running about and enough donuts and coffee to feed a small army, which is slightly higher attendance than what the previously unified pre-split congregation had in 2021, while that same Sunday, only 130 people showed up for the remnant UMC congregation. As the newspaper continued, quote, at the old church, the choir loft was empty. Most of its members have resigned, nor was there a need to fire up the organ. The organist no longer worships there. With no one left to run the sound system, the microphones didn't always work, end quote. Thanks to the stay UMC activists, the Cabot congregation did not pay the large disaffiliation fee and largely walked away from not only their building, but also its large debt. An anonymous donation suddenly paid off this debt for Cabot's stay UMC faction, but this anonymity raises questions. Was it really from a single donor, or might there have been multiple donations funneled through one entity? Did part or all of this money come from the Arkansas Conference and or the Methodist Foundation of Arkansas? I sent inquiries about this to the Arkansas Conference treasurer and assistant treasurer, but have not heard back. When I similarly asked the Methodist Foundation of Arkansas if any funds were sent from or through them to help pay off Cabot UMC's building debt after the November session, the foundation's official response was that they have no comment. As one who is regularly asking for comment from denominational resources, this is pretty common. If they determine that you're not a sympathetic person, they just don't even give you anything. Lampera says, so by blocking this disaffiliation, stay UMC activists prevented the conference from receiving a large exit fee the congregation was ready to pay, left Cabot UMC as a hollowed-out shell of its former self, and likely caused the split within the congregation to be greater than it would have been if they had allowed them to simply retain remain in their building. 
The conference has been especially harsh with Jonesboro first after the congregation went through an extended discernment process and found strong supermajority support for disaffiliation, conference leaders reportedly made them redo their process over again. Then, if Arkansas had acted like every other conference before by simply approving all disaffiliations as a formality, both Jonesboro First and its relatively small but vocal state UMC minority could have both moved on by the end of last year, and the Arkansas conference could have received a lot of money in exit fees. Instead, Arkansas Stay UMC activists take no prisoners approach has brought quite the opposite of the healing and reconciliation or reconciliation, forgiveness, and peace of which Hammett Evans and J.J. Whitney spoke. These, I believe, are Stay UMC representatives. Nearly a year later, the conference and congregation remain locked in a bitter legal battle which, with, with which appeals could easily last well into 2024. At the last conference session, Arkansas's new bishop, Laura Merrill, admitted that the lawsuits with Jonesboro First and Searcy First had been very demanding on the conference staff, which naturally implies diverting their energies from the main mission of the conference. And even if they ultimately won this battle for the congregation's property, the stay UMC side would be stuck with a debt of nearly $5 million on top of over a year's worth of legal fees. Why not seek a more amicable, less costly way? I tried to reach out to Mark Ogren, Lindsey Bainham, Freeman, uh, Margaret M. Webster, Joshua McCauley, Helen Casey Rutland, Stephen Coburn, Hammett Evans, and J.J. Whitney. Lon Paris, if y'all don't know it, he, he is a very meticulous and thorough worker. Uh, I, he, he, okay, so he reached out to all of these stay UMC activists. What did they say? Among other things... Lampere says, I wanted to know if any of them first sought to consult and attempt a less adversarial approach with the leadership of these congregations before taking the extreme action of speaking against the Benannual Conference. Webster even conceded in her speech, quote, well, I don't know anyone at Newtown. That was the Virginia church they withheld. Lampere says, so far the only response was from a lawyer named Thomas Staley who told me that J.J. Whitney referred my email to him and that, quote, as you must know, there is ongoing litigation in Arkansas regarding these matters. Consequently, Reverend Whitney is not able to respond to your queries. Before the pandemic, Jonesboro First was recognized as one of the fastest growing United Methodist congregations in America. From its founding in 1999, Newtown UMC has seen 172 professions of faith, which averages to nearly seven per year. How many of the pastors voting to block its disaffiliation can say the same? The answer to that, if you don't know, is not many. The vast majority of pastors voting in these conference sessions to withhold these churches are not fruit-bearing pastors. They're vindictive, possessive uh, pastors that are institutionally minded and not at all inclined to um, be faithful if it requires letting go. If that's interpreted as um, uh, an indictment of people who see things a certain way. It's meant that way, so you took it right. All right, uh, final paragraphs from Lomperis. Must it really be so hard for the stay UMC loyalists, even in Arkansas and Virginia, to see that thriving Christian ministries making new disciples of Jesus Christ should not be needlessly harmed and disrupted even if their disciple-making is no longer done as part of the United Methodist Church? 
Or must stay UMC activists act like the original disciples when they wrongly tried to stop someone from doing good Christian ministry, quote, because he is not one of us? Yeah, remember Jesus corrected that. Final paragraph, these sad, needlessly painful situations in Arkansas and Virginia offer United Methodists across the country instructive case studies in what not to do if we truly desire to minimize the harm to all sides. So just wrapping up this segment here, I'm sure there's always more to be said, and I've missed out on some vital point, but my prayer that I'm saying in the closeout to this year is that at all these final annual conferences, there can be a spirit of letting go, trusting God, being gracious with one another, that there would not be any acrimony, that there wouldn't be um, digs made or uh, finding small opportunities to, to be disingenuous and hold on to communities that really want to go. So, of course, you know, I'm not a part of the United Methodist Church anymore, and there are many who who take offense to my commenting on what's going on there. Uh, just on a personal note, I've felt guilty in some sense that I'm already out while there are others left behind that are now vulnerable. And um, it's, you know, boo-hoo, I got free, and I'm now ordained in the GMC, and I, I, truth be told, I'm, I'm quite happy. But even so, um, it, it bothers me that so many uh, U.S. congregations in the UMC have not even given a fair shake and allowed to go through 2553. It really bothers me that so many are going to appear before hostile annual conferences and potentially be withheld and are are carrying that anxiety. Some of them angry at me for casting a spotlight on this because it, it ostensibly, hypothetically adds tension or fuel to the fire. That's not my intent here. My, my hope is that by shining a light in a dark place, everybody feels the need to actually behave like Christians. Because as I've watched things develop in the United Methodist Church, I see people behave badly when no one is watching and whenever they are given a certain amount of authority or power to do whatever they want. I would like to think that everybody will behave, be their best selves, um, if not out of fear of the Lord, then out of concern for what the public eye uh, might think as they continue to watch these proceedings. I, I care about what happens in the United Methodist Church because we're all connected, because the word Methodist is for better or for worse tied to them, and as I claim that, that title as well, um, these, these things impact me and how my ministry is received. So I, I just, I think we need to understand that even when we disaffiliate, we're still all connected. And if you're a conservative who's left, or if you're, you know, I don't know why, if you have left the United Methodist Church and you've been inclined to just uh, say sayonara, not my circus, not my monkeys, I, I would really push hard. I would, I would ask you to reconsider your disposition there because were you not so fortunate to be in the church that you were in, you could be in their shoes right now. And we're not called to be sociopaths for Jesus, okay? We're not called to be selfish, narcissistic people. Well, I'm not in it, so I don't care. That is that is a problem mentality, That especially if you're in the global Methodist church. I just want to rebuke right now because I don't want to be in fellowship with people like that. I want to be in fellowship with people who um, have care and concern for, for all their brothers and sisters around the world, especially those that they have been in covenant relationship with recently. So if, if you've had some hardness of heart develop, then I would ask that you repent. If you're in the United Methodist Church and you've just not really known how to 
think or feel around these things. I hope I've given you some clarity here. Um, to be on the side that withholds, that coerces, that uses one's authority and power to trample upon the wishes of others, that's not a good place to be in, okay? That, that has huge ramifications if, if you have any conscience whatsoever. I don't think you want to be on that side. My prayer for, for Oklahoma this, this weekend is that when they get together, they let everybody go who wants to go, and that it's, it's a gracious and kind time um, and then as these other conferences meet, you know, the, the same exact prayer. So I know a lot of you like me highlighting the bad things that are going on. I would love to have no bad things to highlight. You know, I, I, I recently turned off, uh, you know, it doesn't matter how many clicks these things get now. I'm not making any money off of it. I just want to benefit you and your church. And so, yeah, if, if you think that this is useful and you want to support the ministry, then yeah, go to locals.com and you can find Plain Spoken on there and you're very welcome to fund the ministry. It's not going to pad my paycheck. This is going to make the, the ministry bigger, hopefully eventually bring on TJ, my producer, full-time, hopefully uh, form a database full of all the uh, wonderful spreadsheets and information that you guys collate and send me. Um, there are a lot of big, good things that are potentially coming for Plain Spoken and hopefully for the church because I want to be serving more broadly the church. Um, so yeah, let's, if, if, if you think it's good, then support it. And even if you don't pray for me that I'm not harming the situation in any way, I would hate to add to tension or anxiety and cause harm to these churches trying to get out. Um, yeah, God is in control in the end we submit to him. So, uh, my final statement will just be trusting God, not with just this, but with everything we're living in anxious times. It's very tempting to try and give in to the forces that would have us despair and give up, and that's just not for Jesus' people. We've been given a mission. We've been given a way of life. Let's do it together. Thanks for supporting Plain Spoken. Thanks for spending time with me. God bless you. I'll see you next time.